are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information on this podcast, please check out nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. For episode 30, for the first time I have two guests, Paul Wertigo, an amazing drummer known for his work with Pat Metheny in his Grammy Award-winning 80s band, and his cohort David Kane, a multi-instrumentalist and filmmaker, Paul and David are two-thirds of Wertico, Kane, and Gray, an improvisational jazz outfit. So yes, even though this is about songwriting, writing something on the spur of the moment does count. You are right now hearing Destroy the Box from their 2014 album Organic Architecture. They'll be focusing on their 2016 album Shortcuts 40 Improvisations. Now all these improvisations are very short. I'll give you the titles of the time. In what would normally be the third song slot, we'll talk about Where Brush Meets Flow, Go Van Gogh, from their 2013 Sound Portraits album. Finally, we'll listen to Don't Talk to Me About Project Management, from the 2015 album Realization. For more information, please check out WertigoCaneAndGray.com. Now, I left a little of the banter in at the beginning here, as we launched our Skype call together largely so you could hear the two of them refer to each other by name on multiple occasions and try to figure out which voice is which. They're both professor types, both very good speakers, as is their third cohort, Larry Gray, the bass player, who's not on this interview. Even if you are not a jazz fan or don't think listening to improv music sounds like a particularly fun thing to do, I think you'll be surprised, I think you'll be pleased, and at the very least, I think you'll find the discussion interesting. Are the drums loud enough? <laughs> <laughs> That's the main thing, right? <laughs> we are a go. We mixed part of an album. Remember that, Paul? Our first album was Skype. Right. That was our first foray into mixing together, and it was really a lot of fun. And that's the one that won the Independent Music Award. Yeah. So one of you was actually doing the mixing, and the other one was providing input, or did you have some sort of digital connections that you both could touch the faders. I do most of the mixing, but with Paul's input and feedback, because he's just got a sense for sound and, and energy and stuff, and it, we just work really well together, so it's fun to have that extra person just to bring it alive, you know, to bounce ideas off of and to, just to check what you're doing as you're going along. David's cool. really so efficient at pushing the buttons and getting what we want. Rather than have two or three people try to do it and argue and fight over things and all that. <laughs> it's funny because the three of us work so well together musically, but then Larry just lets David and I kind of go into the post-production mode and come up with everything. So it's, it's a really good working relationship from that aspect. Yeah, it's worked great. So I will, in my opening spiel, have uh, played a little bit of Destroy the Box from Organic Architecture 2014, which I went toward that one among the ones that David suggested for this little slot, because at least at the beginning, it sounds like an arranged song. It sounds like a planned song. Obviously, it was just stumbled on, and it's probably mostly in the case of that particular thing because of Larry's... <laughs> it sounds like something he had thought of beforehand that he's bringing to the group. It, he sort of stumbles into something that David picks up on that sounded to me like the Mission Impossible theme song, you know, the same the same <laughs> route that gave birth to the 20th century schizoid man and... <laughs> And I like how in the rest of the song you, well, I guess the Destroy the Box title is because you are, anything that's established like that, that sounds like it's just going to go into something repetitive, is quickly thrown away and you go somewhere else. 
Yeah, and it's tied to the Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, that was one of his big themes as an architect because we were recording in his home that he designed called the Dana Thomas House, a commissioned concert. And that was one of his themes. And I thought, man, I like this guy a lot. You know, so I did some more research on him. But Destroy the Box was his idea of blow up architecture. Let's make it so it's really cool and functional, but really just beautiful. And the acoustics in there were beautiful. And But you're right, the, the title, Kane Paul, is, is an amazing title. He's our title guy, really. <laughs> He's got a nag for that. But it was like, how do you describe a tune that goes kind of like from a melting around to now it's a processional, now it's kind of into a... Like you said, uh, Mark, it's, it's changed. It morphs into different things, and it now becomes like a, a march and becomes like, is it, a, is it a dance? Is it a what? And then it, the shifting and the timing of things and what Larry does and Paul does are what makes it so fun for me to make music with these guys because it's like you're jumping on a magic carpet and wherever it goes, you don't know, but it's excitement is that you know it's going to go somewhere and you're going to have fun and with you trust the guys you're working with because their goal is to make music and that's my goal to have fun and make music. Right, so that was the third of the things done with this trio and I saw you had one more, the Feast for the Senses 2012 album that was just the two of you and three other guys, but still improvisational in a live setting, right? Was that sort of the prototype for this current unit? Right. Well, in a way, too. I mean, David contacted me out of the blue one time. And so I called him back. And, and so all of a sudden, like he said, you got to come down to Springfield. So which I did. And we that first gig was like we didn't really rehearse or anything. I mean, it was a bunch of guys that you had played with before. And some tunes, I guess, were you'd probably played those before. There are a couple of themes, you know, we had. Yeah. yeah. But the Feast for the Senses was also food. It was like a great chef. It it was like yeah. more of a total multimedia event. Right. <laughs> it seems like the video component is pretty key to a lot of these things, right? If you're going to do a live thing and you're not going to overdub, you might as well. It seems like it's, a, right. in fact, a lot more fun to watch some of this stuff, especially like I was watching a, a Shiver Me Tambors posted on YouTube, I think just as Paul Wertico solo or something like that. Yes. Which is mesmerizing to watch. Whereas if you're just listening, you kind of have to really focus, you know, why is there a drum solo that's going on this long? But just to actually <laughs> see it unfold and then you get down from the drum kit and play on a prepared sink and David, you're holding up little lids of things that Paul is playing on like as <laughs> an extra dimension that seems to I had recently talked to Bill Bruford, who is saying that his focus in going toward improvisation away from song oriented stuff that you repeat at gig after gig after gig was a focus on the process rather than the product. And he also described it as watching the thoroughbred racehorses go. <laughs> so it seems like the athleticism and the feeling of the moment that even if it's purely an audio thing, even if you don't get to see it, the way to really enjoy it is not just to sit back and picture the sounds as little dots going across it, which is, I know, also something, David, in your mixing uh, visual art in with the music, you know, those things very much go together. But I think equally rewarding is seeing the human beings doing their athletic thing. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, you know, when you're in the moment and you're just going to walk on the tightrope and say, here we go, let's see what happens, then it's just fun to document that whenever you can. It's hard to, you know, it's a production element that requires some coordination to get the cameras and the camera operators and whatever. But it's just, it's been worth it to do that. And like the one piece I think you might have watched you mentioned was the drum solo with Paul and the visual element there, that whole album we called Sound Portraits. It's like trying to imagine bringing the sound alive in a way that you had never seen before. You know, like when you watch a concert and the camera guy goes or the director says, OK, close up of the guitarist's fingers and 
and now close-up of the drummer's sticks, and close-up of the singer, and it's mostly always a singer. But we were thinking, why? Why can't we create a composite so that the viewer can become the director and they can say, you know, I'm going to watch that, or what interests me at this point is this thing, or maybe it's the combination of things that you would never, ever see in real life, except if you watch the video. <laughs> but we thought, let's let the viewer take control of where they want to watch, what they want to watch. And with a trio, it's easier because there's just three main subjects on stage. That's the first time I've ever done that in a video. And Paul and I were brainstorming one day and said, well, why don't we do it? Because the colors and it's rich patina, you know, a lot of the blues and then the greens and a little bit of red here and there. It's like a painting. So it's like the sound portrait personified as a video now. And we thought, let's just do something different. Why do we do the same old video all the time? It's ridiculous. We're going to change the world, right, Mark? (laughs) When you listen to music, I mean, a lot of times you might listen to the first time and and just hear the whole thing. And then you listen to it again. You might concentrate on this part or the bass part or whatever. Then the more times you listen, you might listen to different ways, different words, different accents. So visually, we want to have that same thing. So the more you watch this video, the more you can kind of concentrate and, and like, absolutely just, you know, you were your own director. That, that was the concept behind it. So let's quickly get to the first actual music <laughs> that we'll play. So we don't, we've kind of established that this is a large amount. So again, five albums with the trio, plus this one that we were just talking about, Feast for the Senses before that, all since 2012. Granted, it's not like it takes you six months to put together an album. It's a matter of the logistics of getting the cameras set up and all the, the you know, to make it one beautiful night. But then you've had some stuff in the studio and to get to the current album shortcuts. So this is 40 songs that are all a minute, two minutes maximum, maybe. Maybe there's one or two that are longer than that. I think there are a couple that might be like 35 seconds. But tell me, how did that compare? I mean, was that from three days of stuff that you then took out the choice bits or would you actually start and sit and just try to do something in two minutes and decide, was that good enough? Was that? Yeah. I mean, basically we went in the studio, we did this in one afternoon and the idea was to do like 30 seconds plus. So I had a stopwatch next to me. And so I would just say, okay. And we would play. And then I'd cue that we were out and pretty much out of those 40 cuts, I think we did 42 cuts and we didn't use two of them because they were sort of similar. So that's basically, everything was totally improvised on the spot. And it's funny because the cuts that you picked, Mark, you know, there's ones that are like a minute and a half long. They're actually the long cuts. I think there are two cuts that are two minutes long. And it's so weird to try to improvise where you have a beginning, a middle, and an end in like 30 plus seconds. It goes by so fast that when you hear a two-minute cut, it's almost like a long cut all of a sudden, you know? (laughs) And the idea behind that was just to create, I mean, not only for attention span of the audience sometimes, you know, but also, you know, just the fact that we're talking about, how does that work, Dave, that after 30 seconds up to five minutes, it's like the same rate of 31 seconds, Spotify pays same amount for any song over 31 seconds. So it could be two <laughs> yeah. or it could be 32 seconds. And right. so we, we're going to change the world. We're going to destroy the box, right? That's our theme. No, they've created to screw over Spotify. I like that as a, as a secondary <laughs> motivation of this. Everybody's a composer in the trio. So it forces us thinking about, all right, so we're going to do something spontaneous. And we know that we're going to intentionally do something that's just over 30 some seconds, could be 40, whatever. But it forces you to think a little differently about how what's in real time, what's happening and where you might go and how long is this exposition? You know, maybe it's, there's no exposition. 
That's Maybe right. it's just the theme and you're just playing, you know, with these other ideas that are happening. And the other thing that, about the shortcuts and our other stuff, we don't even talk about what we're going to do when we start. Right. So part of the magic is like, you know, there's one of the tunes that we're going to listen to that it's really kind of a free flowing, like there's no time, but there is. I mean, that was just a result of us starting and then hearing, wow, my sound is really kind of amorphous. And Larry's playing bass and Paul's playing drums. But then the irony to me, the funny part is at the very, very end, there's a long pause, maybe five, six seconds. And then we just have this hit at the very end. And we look at each other like, that's too cool. Right. That's the Our Reality. So that's the third one. We're going to play three of them in pretty quick succession here. But I do want to allow us, even between the three as we play them, if you want to give a brief introduction, if you remember anything about them based on the titles, which... So David had sent me seven to choose from. I proposed doing a group of three of these short ones as opposed to one song in some of my other episodes. But I think I reordered them to kind of put them this way. So I think the theme for me of these three, the first one is called Starting Here. The second one is called On Inside or Behind. The third one is called Our Reality that you were just referring to. Right. That these all are at least descended from jazz. I mean, obviously, if somebody's going to categorize you, you're a jazz group, but there's enough electronica. You've emphasized that that's not the way you think of it. But the fact that you are not thinking of it according to a plan, that's one of the sides associated with jazz. So, But these three songs in particular, starting here, David's actually playing saxophone. So... Right there, you're playing more or less an acoustic trio here. There's historical connotations that come up. All right, so this is the saxophone. 
out on the porch, this classic jazz, you're in front of the club with the flashing neon sign. That's at least what it's <laughs> connoting. I've got to tell you, the one thing playing with Paul and Larry, and you know, I'm just turned 61 a little while ago, and I've been playing music and writing music a long time. And to be able to just play and know that you know, I feel like a kid again, that excitement you have when you're, I remember as a kid when I was playing music and it was just spontaneous and having fun and knowing that you've got two amazing musicians that are there to support you and, and move with you, flow with you into, you know, different worlds and not trying to do anything to be the pattern players, kind of a cliche sax thing nowadays and not trying to play too many notes or too little notes, but just to play and just to be genuine to that impulse you know from the muse is kind of how i look at it and just to let it flow and then those guys to me i, I have to pinch myself because it's just the most fun I've, I've ever had making music because it's just the timing that comes from that and the the shared ideas and we push each other into different directions and support each other it's just so exciting to be able to do that with sax the acoustic instrument and then the acoustic bass and drums. It's just, there's a beauty in that traditional acoustic sound that you just can't duplicate. You know, I love electronics too, but there's some of those moments that it's just soulful. It's just beautiful. And the drums in this, we've got a deep cymbal bed that it seems like then it's David's sax thing that is leading this particular one. However, then the bass is the only thing left to actually establish some sort of recognizable, moderately paced tempo because Paul is just swirling around creating this background <laughs> atmosphere. Is that you were just kind of taking turns in terms of who's going to start something or how does this work? That one's probably close to, you know, sort of the quote unquote normal avant-garde jazz kind of sound, but we're not really thinking of it as jazz. We're not thinking of it as anything. It's just a conversation. Sure. And you know, when you improvise freely, a lot of times, a lot of stuff is eight minutes long. You know, I mean, a lot of stuff's 18 minutes long. It takes a while to get going. With this record, I mean, there was no time to, like, fuddle around until we found something. Like, as soon as I counted, you know, and just went, okay, the engineer said, okay, red light. I'd look, and we would just start. We had to come up with the goods right away. And then, you know, we would end it accordingly. You know, it wasn't, like, necessarily, okay, at 32 seconds, we end it. Sometimes it would be 35 seconds. Sometimes it would be a minute and a half but it was like life it had a birth a middle and an end and that was the whole idea with this and we really tried not to be an avant-garde group or a rock group just the different parts came out different sides of who we are because we all do different types of music too that's why i don't like to think that we're a jazz group necessarily because some jazz people might not think that we're a jazz group just because of our background or that we play a rock group all of a sudden and you go well if you're playing a rock group you can't be a jazz group so we don't really care what anybody thinks about sure this we don't care about selling records even you know we want to get recognition as far as getting the word out because we think the music is, is important to share but that's our goal is just to be and just be artists and create art as opposed to try to make a lot of money or fit a certain genre or anything i think that would shortchange what our goal really is and we're also multimedia i mean the idea of having dave be able to be such a great director and have films how many groups that play this kind of music actually have seven cameras filming their stuff usually a lot of times stuff is really pretty lo-fi when you look at how jazz groups can be uh, filmed so i think we're a conglomeration of so many different elements and that's what makes us unique but like we're really just having a conversation when we play well, let's get the second snippet here on the board 
So on Insider Behind, this one I put also in this group. This is one that actually features the beat poetry part that has David coming in. Midday, the path becomes steeper, rockier. I spotted a man named Pablo, painting with enormous energy and fertility. He looks at me and says, Are we to paint what's on the face, what's inside the face, or what's behind it? We, I asked, with surprise and excitement. The world today doesn't make sense. Why should I paint pictures that deep? I nodded in agreement and continued up the path. So you've got this nice, the sort of electric piano-y sound that connotes, in my mind, Bitch's Brew mixed with Paul's. So what, yeah. what, do you, what do you call Paul? It seems a good amount of your improvisation involves not having to stick to a particular tempo. Like a lot of times, of course, you get on some particular groove, but that one in particular is one that's just following your expressions of the moment. And then that kind of... It's about flow and forward motion. So it's basically like when you talk, you know, you could be walking down the sidewalk and be in perfect time with your feet. But when you talk, you're not subdividing, you know, rhythms with your speech, even though you could probably transcribe it as that. But it's more organic than inorganic. So when we play something like that, it's just about keeping the music moving and then breathing, leaving space for other people. You know, it's a blending of colors and and blending of dynamics it's basically just flow. I mean, that's the best word for, I think, what we try to do is have a flow to the music. I was thinking, one of my first impressions with this is that Larry has the hardest job in some way, because in that song, as well as the previous one, well, it helps that he's playing an upright bass, so it's not like an electric, where every single note you play is, bomb, is like this giant thing that's right. going to establish a rhythm by its very nature. But when Paul's going crazy there, then the fact that Larry's playing anything at all, unless he's doing little which he does on many songs, you know, uses bass as an effect, but it's going to kind of establish what the thing is that people are following, which in this song, and then also we're going to play later where Brush Meets Flow, another one with a David Kane beat poetry lyric sort of thing. And it established sort of, okay, this is a kind of a walking bass now that provides the bed that ties it to some genre. Say something, David, about how you... Are you improvising the lyrics? For the lyrics, I've got sketches sometimes of just themes or places I want to go. Like this particular series on this Shortcuts album, I wanted to tell a story about brilliant people going through discovery of, you know, what their art is, what science is, what life is. And then the final, you know, I'll give away the end of the story, which is like when when I finally get there myself and I say, uh, you know, I fall down this mountain and I'm caught and I say, can anybody help me? And I'm asking for, and then the voice sails back, well, this is God or the muse, the universe, the divine. 
And I yell back, well, is anybody else there? I mean, it's like my lyrics and my things are all based on soulful retrospection and introspection and and trying to imagine creating a, a place for people that are listening that is inspiring and, you know, ask a lot of questions. You know, like, I love the, the soul. I was struck by, like, I took one of Picasso's quotes and I used it. It's like, what's inside the face? Are we to paint what's on the face, what's inside the face, or what's behind it? I mean, that just, to me, that's an incredible sentence. <laughs> and so kind of what we do, these quotes kind of relate to what we do as well. And so my goal is just to wait for those moments where, it feels like there's something to say, and, and I really appreciate Paul and Larry giving me the chance to do that. It's a way to connect with the audience, too, using language and something I've always been interested in and, and love to do. And can you say a little bit, at least introduce, we can talk more about this throughout the interview, but what you are doing musically, that you're playing an iPad or something, because I'm hearing three distinct synth sounds, like something that's sort of like a steel drum and something like an organ. And then there's this high percussive echoey thing that I think are all you. How are you doing all these three things at the same time? I've got my setup now. It's really, I use a MacBook Pro or a Mac as my kind of brain. And then I route it through Ableton and I use samples that I, and I make instruments before every event we do. I might narrow it down to a hundred instruments and down maybe to 24 or 30 that I have ready at hand. And then so I have these little keyboard controllers, iPads. I use a wind controller. It's made by Yamaha. I think I started playing that like in the 80s or something. It still works. But it's like a little soprano sax, but it's like playing MIDI. You know, I'm playing MIDI, sure. MIDI notes through it. And so in front of me at any time, I can dial up an orchestra. I'm a composer and I studied orchestration with a pretty amazing composer named Roque Cordero many years ago from Panama. And I just love being able to use different textures and different sounds to take people on a journey and adventure. So the electronics allows me to go places that the sax or the, or the voice won't. But it's again, it's to play things that people have never heard before, sounds they've never heard before, and you might never hear again because it's just for that one moment, possibly. I understand when I see you playing the wind controller, how you're getting really fast notes. But you know, it's very common. Like in this song, this was an iPad one, right? Or the, yes. Okay. So is it that the sound itself is a sample that is triggering some like, so it's already has a whole musical phrase with a pitch in it and you're just triggering that. You can set up those sort of things. I sometimes use granular delay that gives me that. But I tell you what, and most people think that this is maybe unusual or funny, but I actually practice the iPad as I will with an instrument. Because it's a totally different feel. So I can play those fast little notes. You have to get the pads of your fingers have to strike it just right. And my fingers are just borderline almost too big. But they fit for the keyboards and some of the new interfaces that people are designing. I can play. I can make bigger squares. I can design my own instrument. I can have, like, stacked octaves. Or I can play an interface that is a circular design. So it's... Just, I mean, the lid is is off. They've destroyed the box, the app designers for the iPad. And the sample quality, it's as good as you're going to get on the desktop. That's the thing that blows my mind is that on this little tiny rectangle, I can carry around an orchestra. And those sounds are actually me playing the iPad. And I think I was playing on that piece. I was playing a couple of small USB MIDI keyboards as well okay. that I had laid out in front of me. So I was playing things simultaneously and then moving back and forth. 
All right, so you're using the delay in order to play a phrase and then it keeps repeating or something so that then you can play... No, no, no. I've tried some looping. In other groups, I've done looping, but with Paul and Larry, to be honest with you, the looping becomes mundane. Yes, yes. It seems like it would not react. So I haven't done any real looping with these guys because I just haven't found the opportunity. If I were to go to that, it would be like, wow, I'm stuck in that loop. I want to just be free and... Well, it's just that I'm, I'm just hearing more than one sound actually on top of each other, and I'm wondering how that is physically working. <laughs> I've got a little tiny keyboard here. Okay. I've got a couple of these, and I lay them out right in front of me, along with an iPad. Actually, I have two iPads, and I've got my wind controller. And so during this session for shortcuts, I just had everything set up on a table. It was very comfortable, and I could play. I had sounds dialed up on each one for each take. And I could just move from one to the other, and then the overlay you get. And the one that you mentioned sounded like Bitches Brew. I actually built that sound as a combination of piano and guitar samples mm. merged together. And I used a little bit of a granular delay, which gives me some of an echo effect, but with some randomness to it. So that's one reason why I like that type of plugin is because it's. I like to be surprised, too. I don't want something that's stuck in an exact repetition. All right, let's throw out another song. Our Reality, number 30 on the list. All right, so that's the one you were referring to with the extra ending. Right. So, Paul, I love that one. It's like, it's as if you're starting with the, I'm going to play the jazz ride cymbal thing, but I'm going to immediately start slowing it down as if you're just trying to screw up Larry, as if you're trying to make... <laughs> you know how count-offs are really important? Usually the count-off gets in the groove. I intentionally did like a terrible count-off that made no sense. So that kind of established that, okay... <laughs> We're starting, but there's no set tempo at this at all. And then that's what we did. We just kind of played. So, again, it's moving forward, but it's almost like elastic. You know, it's, it's like when you take something and, and you pull it apart and it snaps back. It's breathing together, you know. And we were, la- I mean, we could see each other. Some of these, we were laughing so hard that I was almost afraid that it was going to get on the microphone. There's like two or three cuts. There's a bossa nova on one where, I mean, I was dying when we were playing this. I was laughing so hard and then the ending we could see each other so we just went ping and hit that last note but the whole idea with that it's almost anti-swing you know what i mean that's sure that's weird. so and larry and i've been playing together since about 1976 so we play so well it's, we don't have to think 
about anything. And we just trust each other and we, and we just kind of just communicate and we just feel everything together. It's kind of scary. So it's a great bedrock for Dave just to kind of play over because yeah. we're going to just have fun and then Dave can just put whatever he wants over it. But, just, you know, the thing I like about this band, it's not serious all the time. You know what I mean? Sometimes avant-garde jazz or whatever, it's also serious. And I mean, we can play with intensity. We can play, you know, stuff that sounds angry. But I think all three of us are pretty happy people in general. And I think we like to have fun. I mean, we like to really mess around and tell musical jokes and stuff as well. And when you have 40 cuts, I mean, I was the one that's, that was hard, trying to sequence 40 cuts into a record. And it actually didn't take as long as I thought because there were so many different moods. It was all about just moving it forward so that the very beginning to the very end, the listener hopefully is taken on a trip and goes through a lot of different scenarios, just like a regular day in the life would be. You know, you have good things, bad things, funny things, serious things. One thing about I'd like to add about Larry, you mentioned earlier, Mark, his sensibility for being like the glue in, in, in a lot of ways. And just thinking about that particular piece, Larry... He's the most interesting pitched instrumentalist I've ever played with. Not that Paul doesn't play pitched instruments sometimes, but Larry, I can't imagine this working without Larry because he not only is he an amazing bass player, but he plays cello, he's an amazing guitarist, he plays flute. So he thinks in ways, he, he's on multi-levels, whereas a normal bass player might just be on the bass player level or something else you know what i mean his experience as a composer and as a performer and the different types of music he's played whether it's orchestral or jazz and he's played with some amazing people just like paul but he's the guy that has the ability to be the glue or to step up and be the the melody he can be the rhythm he can provide harmonic elements but he's got that thing that's hard even to put into words and i don't know many people that have it as a matter of fact he's like i said he's the only instrumentalist bass player that I know that has that kind of a cosmic consciousness about, you know, oh, it comes down to timing when, you know, in that split second, what note are you going to play? Is it bowed? Is it plucked? Is it, are you playing double stops, multiple notes? Is it going to change to a different mode or whatever it might be? And he's the guy that his voice in this conversation, having all three voices together just makes it gel. And, and there's magic in there. And I can't, really describe the magical formula but it's just that thing about larry and what he brings to it it's just amazing and and like paul said they play together for a long time and you can just you just hear it you just feel it and watch them when they're playing it's like wow <laughs> good stuff well let's talk for a second about what you're doing in that song which it has this sort of high string farfisa i don't know is this the wind controller i assume this is like a, a mini keyboard okay. uh, mark and just so you know, when I, I set up my sounds, I use Ableton to route everything. But mm -hmm. like, I build my instruments. So like that particular piece, I might have had four or five different instruments layered. One was the free-floating sound. One sounded maybe organish. I had some samples of a cello being struck, Kolenyuk, struck with a bow, to give kind of a little bit of a... It sounds like an echo, but it's actually a bow slapping. So a little bit of a percussive thing, and it added to the shimmery effect. My good fortune, I guess, is that it, that happened to be a good sound to dial up <laughs> before we went into the free-flowing thing because it just fit perfectly. It was, again, just the luck of the, the draw or the, or the providence of the moment that those layers of sounds just fit perfectly for that kind of free-flowing liquid kind of a composition. Well, since we talked quite a bit between those three, I think we should keep going <laughs> through the okay. remaining three. 
Again, one of the things I really like about our reality, the last one we played that, as Paul mentioned, the humor element in that it's so short, that one, that it reaches this manic climax about a minute in because you know it can. It's the worst kind of jam band that would reach a manic climax in a 20 minute song and then kind of continue it <laughs> at that level of frenetic. It would be very challenging to do that. But since it's going to be this brief little orgasmic thing... <laughs> I guess the thing to resist then would be just not doing that in every one of your one and a half minute or one minute songs here. Taking chances, the next one is quite a bit more subtle. Let's listen to that just in terms of the let's hear the effects here. So that's only the second track on the album. Very trippy mood piece. Another impressionistic, is that the flexible tempo or what you were terming the natural rhythm to the flow from Paul with this sort of woodpecker sound? What, what are you doing with the drums that's making them not resonate like that? Is that where they're covered up with things? or? Yeah, sometimes I put towels over, but on that particular one, there's a Tibetan bell that actually Dave brought. Sure, that, that opening thing, yep. So I put that on the snare drum. Ah. So basically, when I'm playing the snare drum, it's muted by the Tibetan bell. Interesting, okay. And, I, you know, I muffle my drums a lot with towels and everything. I muffle my, my cymbals a lot. I even put T-shirts on my cymbals. But just had that really dry kind of sound. And it's funny, you said woodpecker. I, I didn't think about the woodpecker, I guess, you know. But I, I just think about short sounds that are real angular. You know, you think of shapes a lot when you play. So you think of, you know, round shapes, you think of angular shapes, squares, triangles. You know, it's almost like you see music in shapes and colors a lot of times when you play this kind of stuff. And that's sort of what we did. And again, that was like one of the really early pieces. I think that might have been the 40 cuts that are sequenced on the record necessarily weren't in line with how we did them, obviously. But that was one of the earliest ones, just to kind of get us in the mood of what we were going to start yeah. doing. Yeah, and that was fun. That was a wind controller that I was playing. But I was able to dial up. There's some amazing sounds that have this really slow attack, but an evolving shape. And I like to combine some things that are maybe shorter articulation with the longer evolving sounds just to get a little more complex, interesting sound. And, and then I heard started playing, I heard Larry doing the, the interesting bowing technique there to get that really beautiful, light kind of harmonics sure. trying to pop there. It was just really, yeah, a really fun trip to do that. And a wind controller just allowed me to kind of weave my way into the into the melody there of the flow and, and it was fun and the bell couldn't have it was a perfect like you mentioned it's a mood piece and very meditative trippy uh kind of a thing and the tibetan bowl worked out perfect let's get the next one out there without a net this is probably the shortest one
So that sounded like to me like the intro to a to a big awesome rock song. <laughs> it's kind of musical sorbet. You know what I mean? Some of the short ones like that are almost like, you know, between a nine course meal, you know, they give you sorbet, right? So you can like taste the next course. That's sort of, some of these songs were kind of almost viewed like that as we did them. The sound that I'm using on that was actually from the iPad. And there's a company that had been bought out by Apple, but Alchemy, they make this incredible sample and you can modulate the sample in real time. So I was able to get that, you know, seemingly, you know, overtone distorted guitar sound and play with it in, in these different ways. And I just was loving the way that you could manipulate the overtones and the harmonics and it would shift and kind of smear into the, into the just like the two chord kind of, yeah. I don't know why the two chords, but just sonically. And I'm, when I'm mixing too, and Paul and I are mixing, we're thinking about the people who are wearing headphones. They're the lucky ones because you can hear the acoustic magic in the mix. You know, that's my goal ultimately for the album product is that when you put on headphones, your ears are going to be hopefully going, wow, that was pretty fun. Let's have some more of that. So some more sorbet. So does it also seem like doing this short format was freeing that you could do a straight ahead groove like that once, whereas if you were in one of your normal nine minute pieces, right. the thought of Paul and Larry going into this, like, <laughs> what, what do you do from there? Like, it seems like you would have to fairly shortly bust it up and do something like I didn't hear anything like that in any of your other albums. Right. That's a good point, Mark. I, I like that observation. And, and that's kind of the fun of it because I was just watching somebody on TV the other day. It was a band and they had like a two chord song and it went on for three and a half minutes. And it's like, wow, really? That seems kind of long. <laughs> for So in some sense, we're maybe doing our listeners a favor by not going on for three and a half minutes. This is, that was all we needed, right, Paul? Part of the story, too, is like when I was with Matheny, one of our first tours in the 80s, we went to like a disco somewhere in Scandinavia after our show. And we walked in. I'm not a disco kind of guy. So all of a sudden, you know, there were all these television monitors with different things going on. And then they were playing music and they would play like a Rolling Stones tune. Like, I, I can't get no satisfaction. But they would only play like the first 30 seconds of it. And then they'd go to another song. And I finally asked them, I said, what is going on? And they said, yeah, people, they can't hang with like, you know, two and a half minutes of music. They got to keep this stuff moving. And I <laughs> thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. And now when you look at everybody, you know, right. even to put on a whole LP of a side of an LP or whole li listen to a whole CD, most people can't even do that anymore. So the idea is that how can you get information in a shorter way that's going to still be fulfilling and all the things that we like about music in a longer format? And that's sort of what we, we did on this one, I think. Were there precedents that you listen? I know two other albums that do this. There's the Residence commercial album. Are you familiar with that? From 1980. They put out 40 songs, each exactly one minute long, so they could sell them as advertisements, get them on the radio by actually buying airtime. <laughs> that was the length of an advertisement, and they could have the whole things played on San Francisco radio. And the other thing that reminds me of this is They Might Be Giants did this, not a whole album, but the last third of one of the albums was called Fingertips, which was just like you're turning the dial on a radio. So they would just write like the first line. Ah, nah, nah, nah. And but the challenge was to do this with a couple dozen things and make them all sound like they were different bands or expand the sonic palette as far as they could. You guys definitely had the most challenge. You know, the fact that you were all 
doing this, but all, you know, it's not like you're going to play one thing and then David's going to say, uh, wait, let me, uh, spend a week programming some more stuff so we can come up, you know, you're not, you're not searching on the internet for more patches that you can bring in or anything. Right. I'm familiar with both those bands, but not, I didn't know that they did that stuff. So was there any other precedent that I don't know about? <laughs> no, not at all. Well, let's play the last one of these that we're going to do from this album. So this is Where We Transform. So the first just straight ahead from beginning to end freak out song that we've we played here, it really reminds me of, I went through a Frank Zappa period a couple of years ago where I was listening to the early yeah. Mother's Invention stuff. And the difference, of course, again, being that for them, if they were playing on the Uncle Meat album or something, it would be part of a nine minute instrumental where they'd just be doing that for a long damn time. Whereas this is very <laughs> concise. Right. Yeah, no, Frank Zappa was a big influence on me in the 80s. I actually met him at one point back in the day when he was speaking out against apartheid, but I always admired him for just kind of, he's a box destroyer too, you know, with a sense of humor and his ability to move and create lines and melodies and, and, and improv. I always thought that was an interesting approach. And I feel like sometimes the sum of all the pieces that you absorb, you know, over a lifetime and influences and I can feel that bubbling up sometimes in my own playing and the fun and the madness of it because it's, that seems like he embodied that sort of crazy intensity that way. I was thinking more like when I was playing it, that was actually the Tibetan bowl upside down on the snare. And I was just thinking it's sort of like, you know, a crazed hip-hop drum and bass kind of groove on acid kind of thing, you know? Again, Larry starts out trying to be controlled to give some semblance of, but then quickly gets right as fast as the rest of you. And it's, it's, Yeah, because right. he doesn't know what's happening. I mean, we're just starting this. That's the thing. We're right. not talking about any of this stuff. So you have to adjust like so quickly, you know? It's not like you can take two minutes and figure out, you know, what's going on. I mean, that, that was the beauty Often of this. I often wonder what Larry thinks. So I was playing the iPad on that tune, and if he's, you know, as a bass player, you can look over and say, well, that guy's going to play sax, that guy's going to play drums. He looks over at me thinking, what the heck's that guy going to play? <laughs> it looks like it's an instrument that, you know, outer form until the first note is heard. So, again, his ad adaptability and his ability to, to morph on the fly is just phenomenal. And, and it was fun that it took off like that. I Actually, with headphones on, that particular piece, this when we mix shortcuts, we use very little compression, we use very little effects, and it was magic happened in that way. There's a huge dynamic range, but in the there's kind of a, a mash going on when all these parts get going in a certain way that created this own phasing because we're in the studio and we've got the mics of the studio. There's something happened 
I don't know if it was the volume level that we reached or the frequencies that we were at, but there was this interesting kind of like twisting, morphing thing. And it's almost like we're in this whirlpool. Then when we come out the other side, it's like, wow. And that was with no, no effects. That just happened from the acoustic properties of the mics and the studio and the notes we were playing. So that was kind of a magical trip, too, just by doing it. Well, and it's such an interesting patch choice on your part, David, which I understand that that, that seems to me the, the strangest part of this process is that you've got all these choices, as you've described, and you're having to choose a sound on the fly, which in some cases, if Paul hits the Tibetan bowl, then, okay, that connotes some kind of particular choice. But this starts so suddenly that it just, it almost seems like you have to just be arbitrary. And the fact that you, you pick this 80s baritone range synth as the thing, as opposed to one of a longer version of this, which is only maybe two and a half minutes or something, the We're Out of Here track from the, the album just before this, which has you on sax, which is, again, a kind of a, I don't want to say traditional, but at least it's recognizable to someone familiar with Coltrane and Ornette Coleman and folks like that. So having a really wicked, the rhythm section is furious and the sax is bursting away is a familiar trope. Having the baritone 80s synth bursting away is not so much. <laughs> Right. Well, that's what I mean. Playing with Paul and Larry, for me, it's like the excitement of being a kid again, because you know that whatever you do, we trust each other. And we're just trying to be true to the muse, you know, trying to take chances and, and know that no matter what, it could be fun, it could be serious, it could be intense, it could be mellow. And just know that we come together in peace. <laughs> and harmony and we're just going to work together to make music and that to me that's the fun thing it's like jumping off of a cliff and you know the parachute is there i mean it's just it's an amazing feeling you know to to be able to do that and i think that's why we're able to get some diversity in our sound and and flow and rhythm right paul we're able to go places that if we had to pre-compose it and write it down and now becomes locked into a form and a flow and we might never find these little gems that we have what's funny is that mark you probably don't know this but we probably only played like maybe set times in these years so in other words like that first thing you know feast for the senses okay that was a different band the next time that dave and i played was sound portraits then out in space was actually the third time we played that was the cd release of some portraits at the place called Space. And so even though we don't play, so we don't rehearse, obviously, because there's nothing to rehearse, we're always talking on the phone. I mean, David and I especially are always talking about philosophy and music. Same with Larry. I mean, it's almost like a lot of the music is based on our collective consciousness about life. And then when we get behind the instruments, then we're just kind of expressing how we feel through the instruments. But basically, we're always jamming by talking to each other. Dave and I, we probably talk like two or three times a day a lot of times, you know, just about anything. And so I think that's it's funny, you know, because so many bands have to rehearse and you think, oh, we'll go on tour and we'll get tight and everything. I kind of love that we, we barely ever play together because then it's so special when we do, you know, it's so fun. Well, yes, I certainly noticed how many other albums from these past couple of years, just even you, Paul, have on your resume that you're so are you you are at the same time running the Paul Wordico trio and well I see the Mideast Midwest Alliance is a little older is it how many projects do you have going at a time here well I mean this is the main for me now because you know I'm an associate I'm a tenured associate professor of jazz studies at Roosevelt University so I can't really do as much playing as I used to so when I play I really pick out things I want to do so I've been doing all kind of different 
things, even as a side, I do a lot of recording sessions. I just got done playing a couple gigs with this band Deacon Blues, which is a Steely Dan tribute band. So I've never played Steely Dan before, but we're doing another gig coming up. and well, Actually, about three more gigs coming up. So I do a lot of things outside of what, you know, the word of cocaine gray thing is. But when we play, that's sort of in some ways the closest thing to my heart at this point. It's sort of a culmination of everything I am, just like with Larry. I mean, when David would say Larry plays cello and guitar and flute and everything, it's sort of, I think that allows him to be him too. It's, you know, even though he plays at the jazz showcase a lot and stuff. But part of the problem is our proximity distance wise. I mean, I'm in Chicago. Dave's in Springfield, Illinois, and Larry's in Champaign, Illinois, most of the time. So it's not like we can just get together for lunch, you know. I mean, we have to drive three hours one way to even get together. So it's a really cool thing just to be able to just talk on the phone and everything. And then just, and when we do play, it's really a special occasion. And all these other types of music just prepare you to play new stuff. So if I play a Steely Dan thing, I might be working on a groove or something and learning an arrangement. Then if I get with, together with these guys, I might have some new input to bring in. That's the beauty of playing a lot of different types of music. You can bring in different elements that might have not been there or they might even be enhanced from what was there before. Well, let me just make a terrible suggestion to you, which is try actually playing live together over Skype once. Just each person records their part on their end because there's lag built in. So as soon as Larry starts to try to play with Paul, then he'll be behind and then Paul will hear Larry and adjust to that. And just, I wonder exactly what kind of awesome train wreck if with you three guys doing that. We'll that do it result. and we'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll when, I, when I started at Roosevelt, I did a TED thing where I was at Roosevelt, the bass player was in Poland, a great bass player, and then the keyboard player was in Australia. And so this is, we're talking about like 19, or 2008. Ah, much worse network speeds back then, yeah. So we decided to play totally free, and it really worked out great. So we really should do something like that at some point. I mean, it would... Deal. Thanks for the inspiration, Mark. <laughs> but you know, the other thing, I, I, David, I don't know if you told Mark, but we just got nominated now today for two independent music awards and we're also in the grammys in the jazz category where you know like the long nominations where you still have like you know 300 plus submissions but we're in the in the jazz category so for the independent music awards it's for best live performance album and best video but that's for realization and then the the grammy ones is for shortcuts that just happened in the last two days so that's kind of exciting right. too so maybe we'll have to play together if we win one of those we'll have to go <laughs> people want us to play the, and then we'll hate each other and then it'll, it'll be the end of the band you know it'll be perfect <laughs> well we have to play a song that shows that you can be playing together for more than two minutes at a time so more typical of you, the rest of so this is from where brush meets flow subtitled van gogh's foci or go van gogh depending on where you look which is seven and a half minutes long so the first half of it is kind of a more developed version of the kind of thing we've already heard in terms of a growing mood that starts with Paul shaking something. The great thing about this is that you've got the video posted for this on YouTube. So I could sort of compare the oral experience with the visual experience. I'm not looking at six cameras. I'm just looking at one camera presentation, but it still makes it a lot clearer what's going on, especially when we get to the end of this, the very end. There's a bunch of percussion, but it's actually, it sounds like it's David, you 
playing the pads on the sax without blowing a note and then Larry plucking, you know, without actually holding down the string so that Paul can be switching drums and, you know, for that end part and still have a nice percussive bed there. Yeah, Paul played timpani and all kinds of percussion and cymbals. And it was cool, the blend with what Larry was playing. And then I was playing some MIDI sampled instruments that I had built with some kind of like a real mellowed celesta, if you know that orchestral mm-hmm. instrument, the kind of a bell-like sound with a little bit of delay and some effects like that to create this shimmery thing. And it just, again, it just came together. And Paul playing the percussion as he did in that floating moment, it was, it was a beautiful thing. It was so nice to have a little timpani and everything, too. I mean, this is actually at the Hoagland Center where Dave has his uh, studio. So it was a really nice room. They brought out a lot of gear that we normally couldn't schlep, you know. I mean, we can't really bring timpani with us on some of these gigs, you know. So that was great to have that. Plus, I was playing half acoustic and half electronic kit on this, too. So that was the first time we really played as a group. And so we brought out stuff and just mm-hmm. kind of went for it. Right. And then the second half of this is a more extended. We get to hear David actually sing uh, <laughs> that it's not, there's pitches involved. It's not merely reading the lyrics. Thank you. 
Let's start with the new element here. Again, David, you've got a substantial and actual song's worth of text here. Can you say a little more about it's also about art, not coincidentally? Imagine that. We ended up with a sound portrait's title, and this piece is about drawing inspiration of people as creative and co-creative people in, in their own realities and perspectives and 
things. And it's really just an exploration of that in my own beat poet kind of way. I love Ferlinghetti and Kerouac, and there's so many good Snyder, so many great poets. And I like to be able to use words to represent impressionistic paintings. And I know you interviewed Bill Bruford a while back in his foray into the yes world when I was a youngster. I appreciated their use of words as sound and not just as uh, lyrics. But this one just felt like it was the right place to go at that point in time. And I had that kind of a sketch set up. And when we started doing this piece, I thought, man, that that's, reminds me of a painting. And Paul, you know, the, he's been known to be or described as an impressionist painter for obvious reasons, right? So when he started doing his percussion and things, I thought, oh my God, this is it. This is a piece where this bit of poetics can maybe find some life. And it just felt perfectly in that moment. And the synchronicity of talking about painting and coming together poetry and sound and image and three souls is just what the magic is made of for me in this one. I saw that word a couple times, impressionistic, applied both to Paul's drumming and to your playing and to the sound as a whole. What does it actually mean in terms of sound? I mean, is it another way of expressing what Paul was describing as the flow, the drums through a lot of this, the percussion bed at the beginning, but even under the vocals where we're throwing in a little timpani here, we're keeping a steady or even constant, but a rhythmic, irregular beat but that it's just coming in with little creatures running across the scene that now, now this little thing is happening and now there's something over here and now, and you can gradually build a mood and build that dynamics that way. Is that what impressionism means? I don't, I'm not sure I understand this. I think it for me as a player, like I love melody, but I'm not trying to be melodic all the time. It's like having a conversation. Our words, every sentence is different. The rhythm is different. The inflection is different. There's sometimes when we might repeat, you know, an idea or a phrase, but there's something in the beauty of just being in the moment and letting that evolve. And in this piece, there's more structure maybe because there's the poem and what Larry's playing kind of gives it more of a maybe structured feel at times. But there's the beauty of painting with the sounds and colors trying to evoke a mood. And I think maybe as a filmmaker too, one of the most powerful elements, if not the most powerful element of film is emotion. And so when I'm making music, emotion to me and how the feeling I have and the feeling that we're creating is as important as the notes I'm playing. I mean, that's where it comes from, as opposed to trying to play patterns or scales or fit into chord progressions and the familiar things. So I guess impressionism is a medium quality word to describe what we're doing. You know, maybe the interpretants aren't there yet for what we're, you know, what we really mean, but it's a close definition, don't you think, Paul? I mean, trying to create layers and textures and melody and rhythm without trying to be specific to a mode or a scale or to right. a yeah. groove or a time signature. It's just letting life flow. If you look at Renaissance painters, I mean, it looks like a picture, you know, like a photograph. If you look at Monet or some of the Impressionist painters, there's a certain vagueness to it. You can look at a picture of a garden, but it's not like a photograph of the garden. It's a thing that's cloudy. You know what it is, but it kind of leaves the listener to have their own interpretation of how they feel and what they're saying. And I think that's part of it, too. There's a certain beauty in that. I would like to think that being called an impressionistic drummer would mean that I try to paint when I play. I mean, even my motions on the drums with my hands, it's about painting. Someone says I look like I'm sword fighting. Depends on what... <laughs> 
But I mean, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not beating. I'm not striking. I'm trying to give different shapes and different textures to everything. So the brush strokes on an impressionistic painting, there's a lot of different ways that, that someone could draw a line or, or outline a figure. And I think that's a lot what we do, too. There's a certain thing that gives it, it is what it is, but it's not literally just a beat it's not literally you know a scale or anything like that this is it like it or leave it and yet at the same time i mean it's some of it's abstract what we do but we're not so abstract i think we as three composers we don't play nonsense that's one reason why some people that love really wild avant-garde music might not like us as much either because they might be going well you know there's shapes there's forms i mean we compose if you look at that stuff it all sounds like it's written out doesn't it there really is form to everything that we do so i think it is closer to impressionistic than it is to completely some abstract painter where you just put something in you know like a, a square in the corner and that's what you got i was noticing in some of the things that sound very fast and i won't say random but that might you know that's kind of what it's associated with avant-garde jazz that like when i hear david doing those it's actually a melody it might be played really fast but it's something that if you slowed it down it would be singable and then when you actually get to a lyric a melody with lyrics here it's not purposefully strange like it has a tonal center it is mostly going up to the same pitch again and again and kind of there's probably a name for that kind of thing that it's not a rap it's not a talk singing but you know you could start reading from the phone book you could but you could have anything and do the same thing like you've got a preset slot that the vocal can go in whatever lyrics you want to pull out at that moment unlike a more regimented thing but yeah that definition of and i think that this defines your relationship to jazz so that definition of impressionistic jazz that again by the time we get under the vocal melody here larry has gone into a walking bass part and again paul like bill bruford even though the rhythms can be challenging some of the time it retreats or at least calls to mind or you'll pull out the ta 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 you'll pull out some of the jazz tropes so that's kind of a way a hermeneutic approach a way into actually understanding what you're doing as opposed to just like some crazy randomness from 1940 avant-garde composer or something no that's right. perfect we are not trying to be strange you know, we're not trying to do anything other than just play together and make music. You know, don't you agree, Dave? Absolutely. Yeah. What you'd consider music, though, is, of course, right. the fact that you've both spent considerable time listening to challenging stuff at the edge of jazz. Am I right? That Well, everything. I mean, literally, right. I mean, as I was a kid, I listened to rock. I listened to jazz. I listened to African music. I listened to music from Chile. I listened to Tibetan monks. So nothing sounds weird to me. It's like if you were a cook and you have all these different spices and you know which ones are going to work for a certain meal. But if you don't know those spices, you're going to be missing those ingredients that is going to make something unique. And I think all three of us are like that. We come from such a diverse background of all kind of music that when we play, we can just play. We're not necessarily segmenting everything. We're not, you know, saying now we're going to play, you know, a 1950s swing tune or something like that. No, we're just going to make music. And our background, we hear something and we can react to it because we know where it's coming from. And then we're going to do our own interpretation of what we want. Even with Dave, I mean, I did a lot of stuff with Ken Nordine. You know who Ken Nordine is, right? Mm -hmm. 
Ken Ordina is, you know, the inventor of word jazz. And I used to do his radio shows and stuff. And he would just make up this stuff, and then we would just play things underneath it. And he loved it. And so Dave is like that. Dave is like, when I play with Dave, Dave comes up with these amazing things, and then we can just make music. It's just so fun, and it's so gratifying to create art on the spot like this. There's a lot of people in a set, they might do an out song once a set or something. But to do everything from scratch like that, that's saying something, I think. There was one moment working on realization the video for that and i was looking around i live out in the country and there's a different landscape obviously you see things that you wouldn't see in the city so i'm out one night it's a really misty night and i had my flashlight i was going to we have uh, chickens on our property because we get organic farm fresh eggs in the morning that's what composers do right so anyhow i had my flashlight and it was just beautiful swirling misty tiny dots and it became a piece on realization for the what was the name of the tune uh that would be nice and watching this cost it was all in harmony and sync this swirling with the mag light shining in it so i grabbed my camera and i videotaped this amazing natural phenomenon and I, that was at that moment i thought that's what it's like with paul and larry we're all swirling together sometimes it speeds up sometimes it slows down I don't know why, where does it come from, where does it go, all that kind of stuff is a mystery. But there was some something in that, that moment where I shone the light on this beauty of nature that I thought, that's it. That's how we play. We don't bump into each other. We flow, and it, it's just very organic. And so that's that's a video track, if you're able to check that out and, and can be mesmerized by the, my nature for nine minutes. That's a challenge, I'll have to warn you. <laughs> but it's, it's a beautiful thing. Right. So that last song was from the 2013 Sound Portraits recording, which was, you said, it's the first time you all played together. We're going to leave folks with one more song, which is from the album right before the Shortcuts album. So Realization that you were just talking about from 2015 that you did a lot of video work on called Don't Talk to Me About Project Management, which seems like a really good, just the synth sound that you apply to it gives it this very modern, you know, it could be over a theme song for a particularly cool new TV show or something. <laughs> I don't know if that's a goal. Once what's, oh, we're, we're instrumental. We, we, we need to make soundtrack music. In general, you, what you do is much too interesting to be in the background of some things, but certainly there are precedents. If you watch movies from the 1950s, there's a car chase scene and somebody's going crazy. It's a Hitchcock thing and there's free jazz going on, you know, so there's perhaps the right project could be matched to one of these things. Plug there, Mark. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Any thoughts about this? Don't talk to me about project management or the realization project. Anything else you want to leave folks with? Well, that tune was just an amazing. I mean, so we've got electronics, and then Paul's driving with the drums there. This, you know, just like you said, it could be in one of those chase scenes. I mean, he's just driving with on the all these levels on on the drum kit. And then Larry playing bass and jumps right in and he's able to shift and morph just like he does. But it was just this kind of ostinato, evolving, flowing synth thing that became like the pulse of that. And then and then it all came together, which is one of my favorite pieces on that album and the video that we shot in Chicago to go with it. It was a lot of fun to do, but it's just, I love that one. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, I love this too. Actually, my, that was my wife's favorite track off that record too. 
I remember driving down to visit our daughter, and we were listening to the new record, and she just loved that particular cut. I don't know. There's something special about the sound and the feel and everything on that cut. The project management part, I'm one of the first records. It's the fundamentals of project management. So all of a sudden, because I come up with all the titles, right? So all of a sudden, Dave and I start getting emails from people about project management, it's like, remember that day? So that's finally like when you're coming up for these titles, we have to say, okay, don't bother me about project management. Right. So the, the tune title is completely whacked, you know, but it does have, it has something to do with uh, a previous <laughs> song, you know. Oh, well, I haven't gotten as many spam emails about project management, so it worked. Oh. I guess it did. Yeah. It did. Yes, the original <laughs> one, the fundamentals of project management from also from the first album, right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> Thanks very much. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you Mark. Too, Mark. Best wishes, man. Thank you. Thank you.
So those guys were really a hoot to talk to. I thoroughly enjoyed that. In fact, we kept talking, so I got to get more information about Paul's earlier work and David's other work on films and things. And if you want to hear that, you need to go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, follow the link to sign up for a membership on the site, which gives you access to all the bonus content on the site. As you've noticed, there are no ads on this, so it's just a way of throwing a little tip into the hat. But more importantly, if you enjoyed this music, please support Paul and David and Larry by going to wordicocaineandgray.com. I will link to some of the videos and things, their live performances that we talked about from the blog post corresponding to this episode, but you can get a lot more stuff straight from their site. Now, continuing in this instrumental vein, next time I'm talking to Michael Manring, who is an amazing, amazing electric bassist. If you're as old as I am, you probably remember the Wyndham Hill label. He was pretty much the house bassist for that. He played on every recording by the late, great Michael Hedges. So that's going to be a really interesting one. And then I've got some more rock stuff after that. Some country eventually. Hey, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, go search for it on the iTunes store. And while you're there, please leave a nice rating, a nice review. It really helped get the word out. We also have a Facebook page. If you like this episode, then why don't you share the Facebook post for this episode on your own page. But most of all, just keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off.